If you're new or you're visiting, my name is Tyler. I'm one of the pastors here at the Austin Stone. If you have a Bible, go and open up to Matthew chapter 4. Chapter 5, excuse me. Matthew chapter 5. We are coming to a major shift in the gospel of Matthew today. So we've been going through this book, uh, verse by verse, and we're transitioning into Jesus' most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. And you can make the argument that this is one of the most influential teachings in the history of the world, in the history of the world, especially the Western world. Even if you didn't grow up in church, even if you haven't been a Christian, or maybe you're not even a Christian in this room, there are still sayings and concepts and phrases from the Sermon on the Mount that still influence our world today. Phrases like, treat others the way you want to be treated, are found in this sermon, preached 2,000 years ago. It's still influencing the way we see the world, how we care for one another, what, what a society should be like. So it's really hard over the next nine weeks to overstate the importance and the influence of this teaching. So what we're gonna do the next nine weeks is just look at the foundation of this sermon called the Beatitudes. And the Beatitudes are just when Jesus is teaching, he's saying, here's what blessing looks like in my kingdom. Those who are blessed in my kingdom are like this, and here's their reward. It's the foundation for the entire Sermon on the Mount. But before we get into all the Beatitudes, Before we get into the text of what Jesus has to say, Matthew, as a writer, wants to give us some context to the sermon Jesus is preaching. See, I want you to know that Jesus, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus didn't write this sermon and then send it out to be read by the people he was around. It wouldn't have worked because most people he was around were illiterate. They couldn't even read if he wrote it. This is what I love about Jesus is he gets around and he teaches actual people. He doesn't delegate to his disciples and have them do all of the interacting with people and he kind of goes away to think and to write. No, he's with people and he's teaching people with real questions and real struggles and real requests and real demands. And when what Matthew's gonna do is he's gonna tell us, now there's groups of people around Jesus when he preaches this sermon and they're there for all sorts of reasons. That, That there's people he calls the crowds There's people he calls the disciples to show us that when the people who are listening to this, they're there for very different reasons. Look at Matthew 4, verse 25 through 5, 2. Here's the context of the Sermon on the Mount. It says, so his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying. So what's happening, the context is as Jesus is teaching people, healing people, the word is spreading very quickly about him. Right, people were hearing rumors of this new young rabbi with new teaching and new power that's causing a quick rise in popularity for Jesus. So it says in verse one, Jesus sees the influx of people around him. And that's what prompts him to go up on the side of the mountain and to begin to teach the disciples and the crowds about the nature of the kingdom of God. Now the crowds and the disciples are these two categories that the gospel writers will employ to describe those who are around Jesus. And here's the whole point of them. 
The reason God highlights their crowds and their disciples for you and for me is this. He wants to show us nobody comes to Jesus. Nobody comes to Jesus without expectation or bias. Nobody comes to Jesus without expectation or bias. See, every person who comes to hear, they've heard the rumors about Jesus. They want to know more about him. All of them are coming with their own preconceived notions of what truth and love and goodness are. Every one of you in this room, me included, we come to Jesus and we have our own story, our own baggage, our own wounds, our own preconceived notions as to what we think he's like and what we think he should do, our own desires and hopes and dreams for our our own lives. Nobody comes to Jesus objectively. Nobody does. Because even when you're trying to objectively assess his validity and his claims, let's say you're reading a book and it's apologetics, you're trying to understand the claims of the scriptures, none of us come objectively because the answer Jesus gives directly affects something we love. It directly speaks into a story you've experienced. And so if Jesus says yes to this question that I ask him, that means something for my life. No one comes to him objectively. Even if you're thinking about him him with your mind, your still heart is full of so many things. And the crowds and the disciples are gonna show to us the types of expectations we come to Jesus with. So before we get into any of Jesus' teachings in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew wants us to know the context of the people around him because you need to know why you're coming to him in the first place. Like you need to have some introspection to go, why am I even interested in Jesus in the first place? Why do I come to church? Why do I read the Bible? Why do I pray? What is it that's driving me to come to him? And the crowds and the disciples show us that honestly, so often what's driving us to come to Jesus is not this pure devotion to want to know him, but normally it's because there's something that he can do for us. So first, the crowds. Why did the crowds come primarily? To hear something new and to be healed themselves. I mean, Jesus was teaching radical things. He was healing people in extraordinary ways. He has all this power, and the crowds are people who will say, I want to experience that. I have issues no one else can fix. I have problems that no one else can solve, and so maybe, just maybe, he can do it. So they clamor around Jesus. The crowds are always kind of pictures, people kind of clawing to get close to him, to be healed by him. They're desperate for him. That's a good thing. The crowds are desperate for Jesus to be healed, but what you find out about the crowds is they're also very fickle when it comes to Jesus. Because as soon as Jesus doesn't perform in the ways that they want him to, as soon as Jesus doesn't meet, meet their immediate needs right when they want him to, they tend to turn on him very quickly. The most obvious example of this is, is when Jesus comes into Jerusalem on the last week of his life. He gets on the donkey, you've maybe heard the story, he gets on the donkey, he comes into Jerusalem, and the people, the crowds, they're Jewish people, they see him on a donkey, they see him riding into Jerusalem, and what they see is the fulfillment of prophecy. They all know their Old Testament, they know Zechariah prophesied, a Jewish prophet, he prophesied, this is how the Messiah would enter Jerusalem. So when they see Jesus, they see he could change me. He could fix my circumstance. He could take the Romans and our oppressors and those over us away and we could be free. And so look at how they respond. 
Matthew 21, 8. It says, most of the crowds, as Jesus coming into, into Jerusalem, most of the crowds spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? And the crowds said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. They see him as one who could fix them. And they say, praise his name. They lay down a red carpet, so to speak, to say, here comes Jesus, our king. He's here to fix us. And then a week later, one week later, they realize, oh, this king is come to suffer and die. Oh, this king is much weaker than we were expecting. Matthew 27, 20. Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. And the governor again said to them, which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, then what shall I do with Jesus who was called the Christ who you were praising a week before? They all said, let him be crucified. And he said, why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. The crowds wanted Jesus to fix them, but the crowds were not loyal to him. They weren't loyal to him. And many of us, more than we even understand, have a tendency to be like the crowds. I th- most of us, when you first believed in Jesus, the reason you first believed in Jesus was probably you were a lot like the crowds. You were desperate. You tried so many things to fix you. Maybe right now you don't even know if you believe in Jesus and you're trying so many things to fix you, so you're trying out the church thing. And nothing's really working and nothing's really settling and nothing's really bringing the contentment and joy that you wanted. And so now I want to go to Jesus and I hope he'll fix me. So many of your stories, that's why you came to church that first time, that's why you read the Bible that first time, or listened to that sermon, or read that book, or prayed that prayer. Yes, it was, you were praying to God. Yes, you were asking Jesus to change you. But it wasn't so much about Jesus as a person, in as much as it was, Jesus, will you fix me? Heal me, forgive me. I mean, that, that's how I came to Christ. I remember I, I, I was 18 and I signed up for this retreat that I never, they had every year, I never went on because it was during football season, so I thought that's when the, when the super spiritual kids go to camp, but that's not for me. And I signed up for it, and I, I remember the week before I signed up, I was in my bedroom, and I never really had prayed on my own before. I mean, I said prayers at church and whatnot, but I hadn't really prayed on my own before. I remember that first time, not even knowing what to pray, and I just said, God, if you're real, I need you to fix me. Because I was so tired of the self-loathing that I had. I was so tired, maybe you can relate, of imagining myself as somebody different. And that's the person who would be happy, but I never could really get there. And so I was going to God, because, well, he's God, I'm hope, but I'm hoping he'll fix me. So I just prayed, God, would you do it? And I remember that retreat, that weekend, he did. He genuinely showed up in such a way where I was 
I've never had joy like that before. I've never actually been refreshed like that before. I never felt, there's this, this thing that Christians experience, that, you know that feeling of feeling clean? You have a clean conscience, you don't feel guilty, you don't feel ashamed, like his promises are louder in your mind than your fears. And I felt that, and I experienced that. And that weekend, in a very real way, was the beginning of many powerful moments in my life. And so before we kind of critique that, I want you to know we want that for you. It's very easy to grow cynical in the Christian faith because you've prayed before and God said no. It's very easy to get jaded because you begged God for him to heal something and he didn't. And so what can happen is we can kind of get used to maybe things just being the status quo and we forget he still can heal you. Some of you need to hear he can actually conquer your loneliness. He can be a friend better than anybody else. Some of you need to hear he actually can forgive you in ways no one else can. He can give you a purpose that's way bigger than any career. He's still mighty to save. He can even heal physical ailments. He can do all those things. So don't, let's not become a church where our faith is so intellectual we forget there's power here with him. But remember what Jesus did. He healed the crowds and then he began to teach them. He healed me that weekend and gave me faith for the first time, but then he began to teach me. And then he begins to show us, I do want to heal you, but I want to heal you in deeper and more profound ways than you're wanting. Look at Matthew 5, 1 through 2 again. So he says, seeing the crowds. It was seeing the crowds that prompted him to go. He went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Jesus was not content to simply heal people and not teach people. He wasn't content with your life being fixed, but you not understanding who he is. You not knowing what his kingdom is like. Because what Jesus is gonna teach them is, yes, I have healed you in these dramatic, physical sort of ways, but what I wanna do is the kingdom of God wants to take healing down deeper into your heart. He wants to heal you in deeper ways. See, when Jesus begins to teach the Sermon on the Mount, what you begin to realize is he is not interested in being on the fringes of your life. He's not interested in being on surface level conversations. He's not interested in just being your spiritual guru that you come to when times are really tough and really hard. He wants to give you a kingdom that when you live in it, you can have joy and contentment no matter the circumstance. Because that's the thing you and I believe more than we would want to admit. We really, really think if I had different circumstances, then I would be different. If God just changed these things, then I would be different. If I had better job, better friends, better spouse, better kids, more money, right? Less pain. If he would just fix these things, God, I promise, I'd be different. But Jesus, when he begins to teach, he's saying, no, no, no. That's settling. I can do those things and I will, but I want to take the change deeper into your heart. Because Jesus knows 
if he just changes your circumstance, but he doesn't change you, then you're going to wind up in the exact same spot you already were. So we'll come to Jesus saying, God, fix my relationship. So often what prompts us to go to God is something's broken in me, my, my understanding of myself, broken in, uh, with a spouse or broken with parents or broken with children or broken with brother or sister, whatever it may be. So we come to him, God, fix these relationships. And then Jesus begins to teach, and in his Sermon on the Mount, he, said, he gets into relationships. But he says, I could change your relationships like that, but I want to get into the lack of forgiveness in your heart. I don't want to stay on the surface. I want to get into the hurt that you have. I want to get into why you're still so bitter. Because if, I, if he changes your circumstance, but he doesn't change your heart, then you are going to be you in a brand new relationship. The same lack of grace and mercy you show towards other people, or the same inability to be honest and frank with other people around you, if he doesn't fix that, then changing the circumstance doesn't matter. He does want healing. He wants to take it deeper. You want a better career. You want to not be looked over at work. You want to feel successful. And he says, I get all that, and I could give you that. But I'd rather give you a kingdom where you're reminded you have a heavenly father who provides for you looks after you because Jesus knows if he just gives you a better whatever you want you're just going to be anxious there you ever been there you're like God if you could just give me this gift I wouldn't be anxious anymore here's the gift thank you I'm super anxious can I get this thing too why you haven't changed why because Jesus is trying to teach you no 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 You need to know to have God as your father who provides for you. Look at the birds. Look at the lilies. God takes care of them. Imagine how he'll take care of you. See, on and on the Sermon on the Mount goes of saying, I could change everything instantaneously, but the deeper, more profound healing is actually getting down to your heart. So if you're here and you want Jesus to heal you in some sort of spectacular way, I'm glad you're here. He can but the spectacular healing he provides may just go even deeper than the surface thing you're asking about. That's how the crowds, the crowds come to Jesus to be healed. But then there are the disciples and they're different from the crowds. So so these are men and women who have explicitly aligned themselves with this rabbi. So Jesus is not the only rabbi who has disciples. That was common practice for rabbis to have disciples in that day. People who would follow them, learn from them, mimic their behaviors and patterns of life. Also important that you understand that Jesus had more than just 12 disciples. The gospel writers tell us at some points he had 72 or 120. And the point is, not to get to a specific number, the point is to say there were all sorts of people who were his disciples. When Jesus picks the 12 disciples, he's picking 12 from among the greater number of disciples to be leaders among those following him. So, The crowds come to be healed, but here's why disciples come. Disciples are around Jesus to accomplish their agenda. The disciples are around Jesus to accomplish their agenda. So the 12 disciples in particular, they regularly reveal that their motives for being around Jesus are not not always pure. Don't confuse closer proximity to him as being more pure than others. You guys know that. People can be in and around church and be even more impure than those who are far from God. Why? Proximity doesn't always mean what you think it means. 
And so disciples, they're around Jesus because there's something they want to accomplish with him. Some value set, some ambition. And for the, the 12 disciples, these young men, their personal ambitions always got in the way of them seeing Jesus clearly. One of the classic stories where this is seen is in their desire for power in the kingdom of God. Look at Matthew 20, verse 20. Here's this incredible story. It says, Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee, James and John, came up to him, Jesus, with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. He said to her, What do you want? She said to him, Say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your kingdom. So James and John, here's the story. James and John go to their mom and say, Mom, listen, here's our, here's our plan. You go to Jesus. We'll be behind you. We'll like kneel curtsy style, make sure he knows like how our posture is right. And then you ask him, say, can they get in your kingdom? Like top stuff, right? They ask for a spiritual promotion. Now, these guys have been with Jesus for some time at this point. Did they really, how did they think this was gonna go down? Do you think they really thought Jesus was going to look back at them and go, you guys are so smart. Those 10 dummies didn't even ask me yet. It's first come, first serve, right? Get in there. It's like a buffet. Just get in, right? They think that's what he was going to do? No. I mean, I can't imagine they thought he was going to do that, but they couldn't help but ask that question. And Jesus responds like only Jesus can. A classic Jesus. He's super gracious. He tells them, no, you don't know what you're asking it's not mine to give. And they go, no, we know we're asking. It is yours to give. And he goes, okay, it's not mine to give and you're gonna suffer. Don't worry about it. We'll talk about it later. Let's paraphrase. And that's, that's how it responds. Well, then the t- other 10 young men who are disciples as well, they're, they're of the 12. They hear the request and their response is anything but spiritual. They, they don't hear the, the request and think, that is so unkind for them to put Jesus in that sort of situation. They don't pull them aside and go, James and John, like, how are your hearts doing, bro? Like, what's going on with you? It's a crazy thing to ask him. No, here's what they say. Verse 24. And when the 10 heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. The first thing they think is, you're taking my spot? That's my spot. I was going to ask him on Thursday. Jesus, I want those. Do you see why they're there? They are the disciples of the king, and yet as soon as Jesus starts talking about power, like, wait, what was that? I'm in. What are you saying? Right? Like, I'm sure Jesus taught a lot of things, right? And these are just normal people like you. I'm sure that Jesus would be talking from time to time, and they would think, kind of zone out and go, wait, what were you saying? I wasn't paying attention. I was just walking around. Right? Like, you think that would probably happen. But like disciples who have their own agendas, who have their own desires, who were kind of using Jesus to get their thing done, when he begins to talk about power, whoa, I'm all ears. That's what disciples tend to be. Disciples tend to get around Jesus and what drew them to Jesus was he could help me accomplish this thing that I also want to accomplish. Listen, this is true of everyone in this room. Everyone in this room who claims to be a disciple of Jesus, listen, all of us wanna be around Jesus. All of us want to follow him. All of us want to listen to him, but all of us tend to have our own personal agendas and passions that we really want Jesus to help us accomplish. Like this is why there are certain teachings of Jesus you think, amen, that's a good word, Jesus. Other times you teach it, you're like, yeah, that's good too, it's fine. But the main thing was that one you said. All of us have those. 
all of us have passions and things that tend to stand out, but here's where it becomes a problem. It's when you begin to portray the kingdom of God like your values are most important. When you begin to portray the kingdom of God that the things you're particularly passionate about are the things, oh, turns out, Jesus is also particularly passionate about. Disciples tend to use him to accomplish their agenda. So let me give you a really practical example of how this kind of fleshes itself out at our church. So one of the things I love about our church, honestly, is just how kind you guys and encouraging you guys are to the preachers of this church. I know it's, it's easy to tell a joke about negative emails that we get, still don't send them, but those, those honestly, the positive far outweigh them. The encouragement you, you guys give to all of our preachers is far outweighs any criticism. And I don't know if that's true for every church, it's true for our church. But what's fascinating is as people give encouragement, it's funny the phrases that all of us who preach there's certain phrases that people will use commonly to all of us. So here, here's one phrase that gets said often. So I, and listen, it's already happened at the nine. I'm gonna say, I'm gonna do this little caveat here. This is not me begging you for an encouragement, okay? I'm not asking you to tell me anything good. You can tell me bad stuff. I don't care, it's fine, okay? So, but when someone comes up and says, that was your best sermon ever. Best sermon ever, have a good Sunday. Best sermon ever, right? So when you first hear that, you're like, that was the best sermon ever. Y'all better retweet that. Like, that's a good sermon, right? But then you begin to think about it and go, okay, if that was my best one, what was last week? Okay, that's not good. That was a bad sermon, I guess. And then what happens is you begin to hear best sermon ever, worst sermon ever. You're like, same sermon. I don't know what to do about that, right? And then what you begin to understand is when people say that, so here's how I've interpreted it. When someone says that, what they tend to mean is you preach powerfully on something that I'm particularly passionate about. You preach powerfully on something that I think is important or that changed my life. So what'll happen is if I ever, the times that I have press, like best sermon ever, and I go, well, why is that? Go on. Like, but like when I ask that question, usually a phrase like this is said, the church really needs to hear that. Society needs to hear that. Or when I first believed that, it changed my life. Now, none of those things are bad. Don't, once again, this is not a critique. But what it's showing is there are certain sermons, sometimes you have said that to people in this church who have preached and we will look back at you and go, I'm glad it worked. That was not my best sermon ever. Because normally it's because we hit a topic you are particularly passionate about. And this is what the disciple group tends to be like. Most of the things that you're passionate about with Jesus are good things. Like rarely is it, do we preach something and, it's, and it fires you up because it's a bad thing. It fires you because it's a good thing and you're passionate about it. So the, the disciples will come, you will come to Jesus with things like social justice or doctrinal clarity or the Holy Spirit or missions or evangelism or racial reconciliation or sexual purity or marriage or parenting or budgeting, whatever it may be. All of those things are important in the kingdom of God. All of them are important in the kingdom of God. But what Jesus teaches in the Sermon on the Mount is that his kingdom is more expansive than any one of your personal passions. His kingdom is more expansive than the things you get most excited about. When you you read the Sermon on the Mount, you begin to notice Jesus is destroying every worldly category we come up for ourselves. He had, you read the Sermon on the Mount, he has no desire 
to fit nicely and neatly into our preconceived theological, social, and political categories. He begins to speak and he begins to stir all those up. He begins to redefine what it means to be human. So for instance, if you read the Sermon on the Mount and you begin to actually obey what Jesus says or consider what Jesus says and think deeply on it, let's say you're here and you just, if you're being honest, you'd say, hey, I lean more conservative in how I see the world and politics and whatnot. To believe in the Sermon on the Mount and to obey it is going to make your non-Christian conservative friends think you're becoming more of a liberal. And if you lean more towards being a liberal, if you believe the Sermon on the Mount and obey it, your non-Christian liberal friends are gonna think you're becoming a conservative because he destroys categories. And if you're here and you're like, I'm more of a centrist, and you're like, you just, your favorite word is the word nuance, right? Lack some nuance there. Use a little bit more nuance. You said in like a 10 character tweet, right? Like, guess what? If you are a centrist and you like having nuance, sometimes the kingdom of God is gonna make you look like a zealot. And there's a, some statements in, in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus does not nuance. He makes big, bold proclamations and just moves on. See, what Jesus is doing in the Sermon on the Mount, he's creating an entirely new category of kingdom people. An entirely new category of kingdom people. That if you truly live in the kingdom of God, the only category that should truly be able to define you is the category of Christian. Your political party should not be the thing that defines you most. It should be the kingdom. And there are times when the kingdom will put you in all sorts of camps. But that's the kind of people Jesus is creating. Because when you read the Sermon on the Mount, what do you see side by side? Things that in our world seem like they're worlds apart. Jesus talks about care and concern for the poor as a non-negotiable. He didn't talk into how, how they became poor. He just says, if they're poor, they should be cared for by the people in his kingdom. And right alongside of that is if you're in his kingdom, you should have care and concern for his sexual ethic and sexual purity right alongside of each other. In his kingdom, there is doctrinal clarity and precision that he keeps saying, you've heard this, but I tell you this. He's getting clarity to theology. And he's also teaching us how to pray raw, authentic, honest prayers too. You see in the kingdom of God that the poor in spirit who are broken, who fail, who mess up, who are clearly not fit in the world's eyes to be loved by God in the ways that he loves us. And they are the same people who enter through the narrow way of killing sin and dying to self. What Jesus does in his Sermon on the Mount, he's bringing together categories that in our world seem worlds apart. Because he's teaching us how to be a new kind of people. So if you're here and you have agendas that things you love that Jesus can help you accomplish, your passion that Jesus is passionate about too, just know he doesn't want you to settle for your own little kingdom. He doesn't want you to settle for your own little agenda. It's too small. It's too narrow. Your kingdom won't last. His kingdom is expansive. In his kingdom, there's room for all of us. Listen, as Christians, we're gonna have various leanings on different topics different personalities, 
different cultural backgrounds, different passions. There's going to be a lot of diversity in the kingdom of God on all sorts of things. But the commonality should be, but our highest allegiance is to the king and his kingdom. It's our highest allegiance. And so if that puts me in a category I'm uncomfortable with, that shouldn't matter because the king knows what he's saying. The king knows what he's doing. So church, listen, let's not use the strategy the world uses and use our agendas to create barriers between us. Let's not be like the world and hold one another hostage with our own agendas. By saying, this thing the Bible cares about and I care about is the most important thing. If you don't care about the way that I care about it, then you may not be in the kingdom of God. I don't even know how to relate to you if you don't care about the thing that I care about. Listen, do you have Bible verses for what you're saying? Yes. Do you have, is God behind the thing you're saying? Yes. But he cares about more than just what you're most passionate about. You have to be, you have to look at the kingdom of God and if Jesus says both of these things are important, we don't have the prerogative to say, but this thing is a little bit more. It's not your authority nor is it mine. We should be a people to say, I know we're gonna have various passions and leanings, but we should be careful to do as the world does and say, if you don't care about my thing, then I can never have any part with you. The thing that the church centers around is the kingdom and all that it values. But you should have, you should have more in common with those in the kingdom of God than those outside of it. Than those in the kingdom of God than those outside of it. Christian, you have more in common with other Christians who don't share your political party, who don't share your gender or your race. You have more in common with Christians who are in the kingdom of God with you. That those who share your gender and share your race and share your political party, if they're not believers with you and in the kingdom of God with you, you have less in common with them than you do with those who look different than you and vote different than you and speak different than you, and yet you're in the same kingdom as them. We have to be a people who know how to have space for that. Because when you read the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus hits a lot of topics, and all are important to him. And so disciples have to be careful that we don't take our agendas and make those the what Jesus is most passionate about. We take our agendas and we put them before Jesus and say, in as much as this coincides with your agenda, I'm in. And if it doesn't, I'll discard it. The crowds come for healing. The disciples come with agendas. And that's going to be the framework that we hear the Sermon on the Mount through. But I want to end by you looking at how the crowds and the disciples interpreted his sermon. And they interpreted it by being the most authoritative thing they'd ever heard. So Matthew 5, the intro of the Sermon on the Mount says this. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, when he sat down his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, so that's the intro. Here's the conclusion statement that kind of wraps up the Sermon on the Mount after he taught all these things. And when Jesus finished saying these things, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. You can come to Jesus with your request. 
You can come with your agendas. But his sermon is showing very clearly he is the king of this kingdom. I find it fascinating that they hear Jesus give this sermon. And the word they use to describe is authority. This is not a word we like to use much right now in our context. The word that we, would, we use more often is things like love. He taught as one who had love like no other. Or things like mercy or wisdom. But they hear Jesus speak and they look at each other and go, have you ever heard someone teach with that level of authority before? They were taught their whole lives. Their scribes had taught them their whole lives and they're thinking, I've never heard anything like this. I've never heard anyone like this. See, Jesus opens his mouth and he thinks your understanding and my understanding of God is rudimentary. He thinks your values are too mild. He thinks your agenda is too narrow. He thinks your healing is too limited. The sermon, listen, it's not a dialogue. He doesn't come to them and say, hey, what do you, what do you guys think? He doesn't circle around for feedback on their thoughts of what he just preached. He speaks as a king setting the agenda for his kingdom. He doesn't caveat his claims. And one of the things he does as a rhetorical device again and again throughout the Sermon on the Mount, he says this, he says, you have heard that it was said, dot, 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 but I say to you, dot, dot, dot. You have heard that it was said, but I say to you. What is fascinating to me is when you read the Sermon on the Mount, sometimes when he says, you have heard that it was said, he's quoting a Bible verse. He's quoting a Bible verse. He quotes an Old Testament verse. He says, you've heard this verse before, but I'm telling you this. Listen, if any preacher you hear says, you've heard the Bible says this, don't worry about that. I'm telling you this, run. Just roll. But Jesus gets up and says, you've heard this verse taught this way. Let me tell you something even greater. See, good preachers, good preachers reference and appeal to other authorities outside of themselves. Good preachers reference and appeal to authorities outside of themselves. So do you know why so often here at this church, you've come here at all, we will reference some theologian, we'll quote a theologian. We're not doing that because we're like, I don't know what to say, listen to this dude. That's not why we're doing it. We're quoting the theologian to say, I wanna reference someone else's understanding, someone else's authority that's even greater than mine. That's why we're doing it, to appeal to the point we're making. Do you know why we have quotations from experts with advanced degrees in various fields of study? It's because when we begin to maybe make a statement about something in the realm of psychology, we want to quote someone with a PhD in that to say, hey, here's an authority that is referencing the point that I'm making, right? And ultimately, ultimately good preachers reference the authority of the scriptures. A good preacher, the reason, once again, we're quoting verses, is not just to quote verses to have just a Bible study, we're quoting verses and showing you the text because we have no authority, any word that is spoken only has authority in as much as it's in line with what God has already spoken. And so if what I'm saying is not expositing what he has already said, then I don't have any authority. But here's Jesus saying, you've heard that it was said, 
but not experts say, not other theologians agree with me on this topic. He says, I say to you, I don't need a reference point. I don't need clarification. I don't need a greater authority to validate what I'm saying. I'm the authority. That's why when they heard him, they were thinking, I've never and you've never heard anybody like this. He's saying, my word trumps everybody. He ends the sermon by saying, if you don't listen to the words of mine, in Matthew 7, these words of mine, you're like someone who builds their house on sand. And when the storms come, the house crumbles because that's the person who didn't listen to me. Could you imagine having that level of authority in the world? If you don't listen to my words, your life's going to fall apart. That's his authority. And the kingdom of God is here to explode your categories, to turn your world upside down. That's his intent. His intent in this sermon is not just to coddle you and comfort you. He's trying to explode what you think life is about. He's trying to show you what the kingdom is about. He is not coming to you today. Jesus is not coming to you today and asking if you will make him the personal Lord and Savior of your life. That's not what he's saying today. He's not asking to be invited into your life. He's inviting you into his. He's inviting you into his. He has not come to help you accomplish your plans and your agendas. He's saying, no, you come into my kingdom where there's life. I'm inviting you into my world. I'm not asking to come into yours. I'm coming into the world to bring you into mine because your categories are too small for the world he's trying to make. Your desires are too small for the joys he wants to give. So he's not coming to you on your terms, but on his because he's the king. And he's showing you what the kingdom is like. But here's the most amazing thing about Jesus. He comes with all this authority. He comes with this kingdom. But his ministry does not end with him preaching a sermon. It's incredible about Jesus. He could preach in such a way where crowds just flocked. His popularity just soaring. And yet, his kingdom was only purchased not through him preaching a sermon, but through him dying a death for you. He came with all this authority, and he didn't use his authority to crush you with demands. He used his authority to lay it down, to die for you, so he could lift you up into his kingdom. Because if, if you read the Sermon on the Mount, and all we had was this sermon, we would all give up. It's too hard. When you read the Sermon on the Mount, you're thinking, Oh my, is that really what I have to do? There's literally a phrase that says, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. You're like, well, guess I'm out, right? If all he did was preach a sermon, that would be the most unhelpful thing to us anyway. Jesus could have his kingdom, but none of us would be there. So what does he have to do? He doesn't just preach a sermon. He comes, he lays his life down for you. He dies so that you would never have to wonder, does the kingdom of God depend on me? Does my standing in the kingdom of God depend on me? No. But he dies so you could have access to it and be in it firmly and then begin to live in it. His death makes the, this, the Sermon on the Mount no longer this burden to bear, but the way of life for those who are in the love of the king. That's what it does. 
And so if you're here today and you have been asking God to heal you of something, keep asking him. I wanna beg with you. I want him to heal me in ways that he still hasn't. Keep asking him. But also know the one who may say no to your initial request is not saying no because he doesn't love you. He's not saying no because your request is dumb. He's saying no because he wants to heal you in deeper ways. He's saying no to you as the one, listen, I died for you. I wouldn't lie to you. What benefit do I get from telling you a lie? If you're here and you're struggling with faith because you don't think he'll heal you, maybe he's trying to heal you in even deeper ways that lead to eternal life and not just better circumstances. And if you're here and you have the thing you're passionate about, you have the agenda you want to accomplish, good and right. You work with God to accomplish that thing in his kingdom, but then be open to maybe his agenda being bigger than yours. Be open to maybe when he begins to speak of what his kingdom is like, you may have to admit the things you've been passionate about maybe you shouldn't be as passionate about. But listen, he's not telling you this because he doesn't love you. He's trying to give you a better agenda that'll outlast your life a kingdom that won't fade, a kingdom that won't rust, a kingdom that no one can destroy. He's inviting you into a purpose better than your job and better than your family. He has a kingdom you were made for. Because what's special about the kingdom is the king. He's what's special. So whenever you struggle with the demands of the kingdom and you see how lofty the standards are, remember there's even loftier and greater grace for you. Because that's what the king is like. He raises the bar to these extreme levels. And he looks at all of us and says, don't worry, I'll hit it for you. So you can be a part of this with me and be in his life and his love. Let's pray together. Father, we are a group of people who so often settle for our kingdoms, who settle for our definitions, who settle for our categories, who settle for our plans and ambitions and dreams. And God, we're here not because we have it all together. God, we're here precisely because we don't. And Jesus, you begin to speak to us and we wanna tell you we're here for all sorts of reasons. We're here to be healed. We're here because we think something you say is important. But Jesus, we want to come to you and say, you tell me what's important. You tell me what I should value. You tell me what I should do. You tell me what category to belong to. You tell me what kingdom to pursue. And Jesus, you keep telling me that you've got it. God, so many of us are trying to follow you and we're failing and we're sinning and all Satan is doing and our sin is doing is telling us we should give up, it's impossible. So Jesus, right now, would you remind us that while there is lofty standards in your kingdom, there's greater grace. As high as your law goes, God, your grace goes even higher. As high as our purpose goes, God, your mercy goes even higher. And it's that mercy, it's that grace that keeps us wanting to advance your kingdom. God, make this a church who our greatest allegiance is to no one other than you. 
no category, no leader. Jesus, you and your kingdom, that's it. Help this church be an outpost of what your kingdom is like to this city. God, I want them to see it's bigger and fuller and more compelling than every other vision. Do what only you can. I pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen, church, let's stand. Let's sing together.